0: My name is Dr. Christopher Janerian. and this is World History 102, uh, Part 2. Welcome to Part 2, the first half of the 20th century. This is a Great Big History podcast, greatbighistory.com. Um, today we start our second five-week course, our second uh, part. And it's going to go from 1900 to 1945, which can best be summed up by a joke by comedian Eddie Izzard who talked about mass murder. And he goes, oh, your diary must look odd, being a mass murderer. Death, 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 quick shower, afternoon tea death, 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 death. And that's essentially from 1915 and 1945. That's essentially what we're talking about. The 20th century is one of the most depressing centuries we will talk about in this class. It ranks right up there with the 400s, which saw the collapse of uh, most major civilizations. It's going to rank right up there with the 1200s, which sees the Black Death and the uh, death of 25% of the world's population and and um, the Mongol conquest, which is going to kill another tens of millions of people, 30 million people in China. Um, this is a terrible century. It is a depressing century. It is a hard century to talk about, to teach about, and to really wrap your mind around it. Um, but we're going to try. And we're going to talk about some of the happy stuff, too, because there's happiness in the 20th century. And we're going to talk about some of that, too. So what is the world in 1910? In 1910, if you think Mary Poppins, that is the best way to think about it. In Mary Poppins, Mr. Banks, the dad, comes walking home from work, and he sings a song. And that song, which if you are in my face-to-face class, um, we'll watch. But if you are um, on the online classes, uh, I don't want to get into... I don't want to have a problem with copyright, so I'm not going to play the video. Uh, But you can find it easily on YouTube. Uh, It's The Life I Lead. The Life I Lead from Mary Poppins. But I'm going to show you the lyrics. And Mr. Banks comes in and starts singing about his life. I feel a surge of deep satisfaction. I'm not going to sing, but I'm going to do some spoken word with Def Jam type. Much a king astride his noble steed. When I return from daily strife to heart and wife, it's, I think, supposed to be hearth and wife. How pleasant is the life I lead! because it doesn't make any sense that it would be heart. It'd be hearth, meaning home, hearth. H-E-A-R-T-H. Hearth and wife. How pleasant is the life I lead. So, work is, work is tough, man. Work is like war. And home is pleasant. But even the war part is good. Mrs. Banks comes up. Dear, it's about the children. There's something about the children. Yes, yes, yes. He totally ignores her. I run my home precisely on schedule. At 6.01, I march through the door. My slippers, sherry, which is a drink, and pipe are due at 6.02. Consistent is the life I lead. It's grand to be an Englishman in 1910. King Edward's on the throne. It's the age of men. I'm the lord of my castle, the sovereign, the liege. I treat my subjects, servants, children, wife, with a firm but gentle hand, noblesse, Oblige. It's 6.03, and the heirs to my dominion, his children, are scrubbed and tubbed and adequately fed. And so I'll pat them on the head and send them off to bed. Ah, lordly is the life I lead. How wonderful is that? And that is life for an Englishman, for a white person a Western European, in 1910. Life is good. It's the best life you could live on Earth in 1910. To be an Englishman, to be an upper class or gentleman in England in 1910 was to live the best life on Earth in 1910. It was like a Roman in the year one. An Athenian in 450 BC, a Babylonian in 1700, an Arab in Bang- in uh, Baghdad, in like 900 AD. It is the best life you can lead on Earth. And and look at the song. It's full of this stuff. He doesn't even have to have a relationship with his kids. That's wonderful. He comes in and his servants and his wife have taken care of everything. He just comes in, he gets his slippers, his sherry, his pipe. He can relax. He doesn't have to parent. He doesn't have to listen to anybody's problems. He takes care of them. That's his noblest oblige. He'll take care of, he makes the money, and he lets them live their lives. Noblest oblige. I am am doing what I am supposed to do. So you already have a definition of masculinity here. And look at, at all the references to it. Lordly, sovereign, the liege, the lord, noblest oblige. He's not an ordinary banker. When he comes home, he's the king of his castle. And he's taking that privilege out into the world with him. His life is consistent. It's dependable. It's predictable. There's no craziness going on here. And so in 1910, if you're a white person, an upper-class white person, life is good. It's the best life you can lead. The economy is doing well. There is peace. There hasn't been a great war since 1815. There haven't even been little wars since the 1870s. There's new inventions. There's electricity. Industrialization has made things cheap while making your wages rise. Life is good. He even calls it his dominion, his castle. He's a sovereign unto himself. Life is good. There's another song. This one is earlier. It's from the 1870s. It's from Gilbert and Sullivan. And it's a the modern, I am the very model of a modern major general. Now, this song is the fastest lyrical song for about a hundred years. There will be a song um, by Stephen Sondheim that at parts is actually faster word per minute. And then there is Hamilton, uh, the new play Hamilton, which was out a couple years ago, which is still out, but that song Guns and Ships is faster than this. But for about 100 years, this was the rap battle winner in speed in all of musical theater. If you could do this song, you were an awesome singer. The other thing is, you gotta be an old man to do this song, or at least dressed up as an old man to do this song. But this is from the 1870s. So out comes the major general. And he's gonna tell you, he's gonna tell all the men and all the women, he's he's brought in the the version that we'll see on in class. He's brought in by a crowd of adoring women, fangirls. Um different Versions may do it differently Uh, to play the chorus. I have cut out the chorus parts of these lyrics because they basically repeat the last um, several lines from the major general. And so let's go through this. What does it mean to be a modern major general around the age of 1900? I am the very model of a modern major general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England, and I quote the fights historical, from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I am very well acquainted, too, with matters mathematical. I understand equations, both the simple and quadratical. About binomial theorem, I am teeming with a lot of news, with many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. I am very good at integral and differential calculus. I know the scientific names of beings animalculus. In short, it matters vegetable, animal, and mineral. I am the very model of a modern major general. I know our mythic history, King Arthur and Sir Caradoc. I answer hard Acoustics. Acoustics. I have a very pretty taste for paradox. I quote in Elegiacs, All Crimes of Heligabalus. In conics, I can floor... Peric- peculiarities parabolas. See, this is a this is a hard song to do. I can tell undoubted Raphaels from Gerard Dows and Zaph- Zaph- Zaphonines. I know the croaking chorus from the frogs of Aristophanes, an ancient Greek playwright. Then I can hum a fugue of which I've heard the music's dinner for, and whistle all the airs from that infernal nonsense pinafore, which is Great, it's a great reference because what Gilbert and Sullivan are actually doing have dropped the rhyme to reference a previous show pinafore that they've created, so they've actually self-referenced themselves. Which is, yeah, I mean, 50 Cent does this, I mean, that's how awesome this is. Then I can write a washing bill in. Babylonic cuneiform, and tell you every detail of Caracaractis' uniform. In short, it matters vegetable, animal, and mineral. I am the very model of a model major general. In fact, when I know what is meant by mamelon and ravelin, when I can tell the sight of Mauser rifle from a javelin, when such affairs as sorties and surprises I'm more wary at, and when I know precisely what is meant by commissariat, when I have learnt what progress has been made in modern gunnery, when I know more of tactics than a novice in a nunnery, in short, when I've got a smattering of elemental strategy. You'll say a better major general has never sat For my military knowledge, though I'm plucky and adventurous, has only brought down to the beginning of the century. But still, in matters of vegetable, animal, and mineral, I am the very model of a modern major general." What does this tell you about the thought about what military tactics, military leaders were like in 1900? And the answer is very impressive men, well-educated leaders, men who have gone to Eden, to Cambridge, to Oxford, to the Sorbonne, who know the classics, Aristophanes. Helio Gabalus, King Arthur, and Sir Caradoc, who know math, geometry, military history, Marathon, and Waterloo, but they don't know anything modern. They don't know anything about modern warfare. Now, this is done in eighteen, I think, seventy-nine. I could be wrong about that, and it's an insult. It's a great song. It's a look at how educated I am. And then he has an entire section about how I know nothing. Nothing. I'm a major general. I am the leader of men, and I know nothing about modern warfare at all. I'm plucky and adventuresome. And you know what that's going to do? It's going to get an F-load of people dead. Because when World War I happens, at the beginning, coming up, these very men are going to be in charge. And their answer is charge and machine guns and artillery and chemical warfare are going to murder millions of men. Millions of men are going to get killed by stupidity, their bravery and their manhood wasted, shot to pieces by machine guns. Their insides burning out from chemical warfare. We are going to talk about the Battle of the Somme. 60,000 people will be killed or wounded just on the British side in one day. That's as many people as was killed in the entire Vietnam War from basically 1955 to 1975 in one day. We're going to talk about that. So. So modernity. Pre-1915, this is the way to think about the world. This is the major um, philosoph- philosophy, really, that's that's dominating Western Europe. That life is good. It's called modernity. There's modernity, then there's post-modernity. We'll talk about that later. But life is good. We see this in Ezra Pound. We see this in the writings of Kipling. People are good. Life is good. We are civilized. Civilization is good. Hell, we're going to spread it colonialism and imperialism, what we talked about in part one, we're going to go to places, white people are going to go to brown, black, yellow, red, wherever places, and going to bring white people culture. And they're going to look at these people and say, you could be like us. And those people are going to say, yeah, we don't, we're doing fine on our own. And white people are going to say, no, you don't understand. You're going to be like us because being like us is Awesome. And so they bring with them order, hierarchy, and progress. That's the way they viewed it. You get mass movements, culture, education. In America, you get temperance to stop drinking, stop men from drinking. You get the idea that we should have Education for kids, universal. Every kid should get one. Every kid should be literate. That's new. And that was a mass movement. Lots of people participated. Later on, we're going to get suffrage, where it's going to be a mass movement of millions of people saying women should participate in democracy. They're going to demand rights. They're going to organize. They're going to show up. They're going to demand. They want participation in the world in deciding how things are going to be. They don't want elites to make decisions for them. They want to have a say. Part of modernity is, God is awesome. My God is an awesome God. God is everywhere, and God is totally on my side. Have you seen my life? It's awesome. Finally, the world is knowable. It is stable and there is no greater example of this than Victoria Queen Victoria's diamond jubilee I means she's been in charge 60 years diamond jubilee of 1897 you have to understand what that means the diamond jubilee was a giant party britain is in charge of the world britain is rich the average britain is doing well Yeah, there's the Irish problem, but there's always an Irish problem. But if you're British, Scottish, Protestant, Irish, life is good. And Queen Victoria has been on the throne so long, nobody can remember when she wasn't. She outlived an entire two generations of people. The people who were adults before she became queen, she outlived them. And then the generation that were kids, she outlived most of them. So that by the time 1897 rolls around, and she'll be on the throne until 1900, 1901, no one could remember what was happening before. She had always been queen, which means that's stability. Because she's a good queen. She's great. There's no major problems. Yeah, we could go through and find some stuff. There's always turmoil here and there and everything. But for the most part, the life was noble and stable. The queen is the queen is the queen. She has been on the money so long. Like, we are living in that age. Queen Elizabeth II has been on the throne since, what, 1915? 55, 56, she's been on the throne so long that there have been, there are generations, not just one, there are generations of children who haven't known another queen. I'm one of them. I've never known a person. Not only have I never known another queen and or king of England, I don't even know young Elizabeth. I've always had old Elizabeth. Or at least middle-aged. No, pretty much old Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth. that's not an insult to her. That's how long she's been around. I'm a middle-aged man. And she had been on the throne 20-something years by the time I came along. So for people younger than me, even for people older than me, they don't remember what it was like before. That's stability. That's dependability. You can take a look at the map. Up on the screen, there's two Europes 1910 and 1920. Notice how big the countries are in 1910. They're all empires France, Germany, Austria, Hungary. Turkey, you could see, is beginning to break up a little bit. The Ottoman Empire is beginning to break up. So in that southeastern part of Europe, there's beginning to be little states. Um, Russia is huge. And then take a look at the map on the right of 1920. And there's all these little dinky countries. The the Austrian-Hungarian Empire has broken up. The Turkish Empire has broken up. Greece got big out of the middle of nowhere. Russia has broken up into pieces there are countries that that simply didn't exist in 1910 or had never existed that now exist. The world is going to change. It's going to break up. It's going to fall into pieces. The stuff is going to hit the fan between 1910 and 1920. So that it, life is good, but there are problems. And it's the traditional problem like it's the traditional old people hating on young people like it's it's baby boomers hating on you millennials and to be fair it's what their parents did to them baby boomers got pooped on by their parents remember the same person who's calling you lazy their your grandpa called him a sex drug addict a dirty sex drug addict when they were kids in the 1960s. So every generation hates the generation coming after it because the generation coming after it is a reminder you're going to die and you don't get to run the world forever. And so one of the problems in 1900 is success. Success breeds softness. You look around and go, look at my kids. They have everything. They don't have to work for anything. When I was a kid, I had to walk through snow both ways, uphill. I had to, uh, you know, I had to at least kill at least six goals just to learn my ABCs. Uh, I only had one pair of underwear ever. So softness and decadence. They looked at social problems. Why are people lazy? Why are people on drugs? Why are people drinking alcoholism? There was a crisis of masculinity. We won. The world is good. What does it mean to be a man? I don't conquer an empire anymore. Though empires have been conquered, the world is conquered. What does it mean now? We see this specifically in, in um, Brooks's war sonnets that the world is old, weary, and that what we have is shame. Because I'm not. My grandfather fought Napoleon. What have I done? And this is is fight club, right? I have no great war. I have no great crusade. What am I? How do I define myself? And for him, for Brooks, and for a generation who are going to go to war in 1915, war equaled purity and purpose and unity. And for the Nazis, they're going to continue that into the 20s, in the 30s. That it was war that made you a man. And that was true. I can't argue with that. It sounds terrible. But history, our history, my history 102 and my history 101, men, women could always define themselves in one way. A girl became a woman by having a baby. That was it. You had a baby. You're a woman. Nobody could argue with you. Men don't have that in many Western cultures. If you're Jewish, you have a bar mitzvah. Great. About 13, you go in a boy, you read some lines from the Torah, you come out, you're a man. In some ways, we used marriage. That made you a man but masculinity was defined basically by work. You were a farmer. 95% of people were farmers. So when your father died and you took over the farm, boom, you're a man. Cuz you were in charge of the farm. There was nobody else. It was your 10 acres. Now it was now it was time to get a wife because now you're a man. It was time to get a wife, have some kids, that made you a man. The other way, you could always become a man that no one would ever deny you manhood. Was going off to war. You go off to war with Caesar. You go off. You go. Afghanistan. With Alexander. And you come back. Ain't nobody. Going to be like. Hey boy. Uh 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 uh. -uh." Look at the Civil War. 100, 200, 300,000 African American men. Black men. Who could not vote. Who had no rights. Who were either ex-slaves or were freedmen but had no rights in the North, went and fought for the Union. And when they got out, they said, hey, how you like us now? And America said, a lot. 14th Amendment. You have the right to vote. We can't deny you that. You're a man. You fought as bravely as white guys did. We can't deny it. You won. Thank you. War makes boys into men. In fact, we sell that. The army, the marines, in their commercials sell that. There's a famous commercial from about 10 years ago during the Iraq war, which is like out in the middle of nowhere in, in Iowa, Wyoming, someplace. And it's a, it's a man, old man, at a train station. And his son walks up. And he's like, I never thought you'd amount to anything. I always thought you'd just be picking your nose. And then the guy puts on the army beret, but now I can see you're a man. And the train comes in, and he shakes his hand, because now he respects his son, where he didn't respect his son before, because now he's in the army. You want your dad to respect you, you join the army, you join the marines, you go off to war, you go fight in Iraq, you come back, you're a man, no matter what your age is. And that has been true in all Western societies, at least, but pretty much all societies. War is what makes a man a man. But here's the thing. What if there are no wars? What what if you are... There is no war. You can get an education... I have a PhD. You can't get more education than I got. And there are still people who are like, what do you know? My answer is a whole lot more than you, but that doesn't matter because their attitude is, who are you? You're not anybody. You're nobody. You're not old enough to be old to deserve respect. And all you've got is a piece of paper that says you're smart. But they will genuflect for the dude in the Marine uniform. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's the way it is. And that's the way it is in most societies. War made you a man. Which means there's a problem if there are no wars. Because how do you define yourself as a man? So we have this crisis of masculinity. We have social problems. We have the rich versus the poor. We have poverty. We have illiteracy. We have disease like cholera in the cities. We have all the things we talked about of industrialization that are problems. Women are changing. Oh, if there wasn't a problem just defining what a man is, now women are changing. They're demanding rights. They're demanding control of their sexuality. They want to do things with their body instead of being told what to do with their body. Well, at least when I was a man, as our song from Mr. Banks says, I'm in charge of my wife. I'm the Lord. I'm the... Ca- I am the liege. They are my they are my subjects. My wife is my subject. If I want a little something-something, I get it. And now she's like, yeah, you know what? I want a little something-something, too, from somebody else. What the hell? Whoa, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey! Women are demanding rights over their own body, over their own sexuality. Again, reinforcing the crisis of masculinity. What does it mean to be a man if I'm not in charge of women? And then, well, at least we have God, right? I'm made in God's image, God is a man. I'm a man, we can depend on God, he's got a plan, life is good, woo! And then there's atheism, and then there's science, and I like science, all people like science in 1900, or most people like science in 1900, they come along, and science is great, look at all the stuff that's invented, look at all this stuff, it's awesome, but science also says, guess what, you don't need God, we can't prove God exists, there is no God, and I go, well, what about the weather? And they're like, well, here's how weather works. And you're like, okay, I got that. I uh, don't need polytheism now. Well, what about a monotheistic God? And they're like, well, guess what? Morality is made within the sense. And we get psychology to say that God doesn't control your thoughts and your behaviors. You do. Your ego, your id, your superego. We're going to talk about Freud later. And suddenly it go, you go, well, who am I? I'm adrift in a giant world by myself. I don't even have God to protect me or to help me. Then I pray at night. But what if those prayers don't go anywhere? It was one thing to be ignored. Fair enough. God's, God's busy. Got a lot of things going on. He's got a plan. But if God's not even there, what does that mean about me? Now, there are people who are going to say, that's awesome. You are not a cog in a machine. You are an individual. It's humanism run to triumphant. You are awesome, man. You can do anything. And then there's people, like our example man, his crisis of masculinity goes, I'm alone in the universe. With no power no stability alone and that is incredibly scary we've got ubiquitous poverty that's dickens which means we get the we get the rise of democratic parties so Dickens is in Great Expectations and Oliver Twist. going to talk about, in, in, in Christmas Carol, go and talk about poverty. Poverty is everywhere. Now, this is a new kind of poverty. Poverty had always been everywhere. The ordinary person in 1500, 15 B, 1500 BC, much less AD, was poor, a poor farmer who barely got by. But everybody they knew was poor except for the one rich dude in town who was the mayor and kind of ran things. So the poverty wasn't a problem. Everybody was poor. But now with industrialization, suddenly there are a lot more rich people. That 1% becomes 10%. Now you get a middle class from 10% to like 40% or 30%. People who suddenly are like, dude, I have enough money. I can buy a bigger house uptown. Yeah, I'm not the Jeffersons. I can't move on up to the east side. But I can move up to the 30s. That's pretty nice. And so Democratic parties are going to pop up to appeal to these people because they're going to pop up and go, your life sucks. And people are going to say, yes. And they're like, you don't have enough money. Yes. Vote for us and we will help you. The most famous is going to be the Labor Party in England that pops up. But later on, the Communist parties are going to pop up that say the same thing. And what all of them are going to demand is rights and changes. So suddenly that stability ain't stable anymore. And you're going to get things like the progressive income tax. The commons, the house of commons takes over for the house of lords. Labor unions fight and they strike and they win. Communism and existentialism become major philosophies that people not only read about and entertain, but start to follow. And these are philosophies that don't deal with traditions. They deal with overthrowing traditions. And what happens after that? And finally, you get consumerism. What is the purpose, purpose of life? What is the purpose of your existence? And in consumerism, what advertising, the first great age of advertising tells you, is stuff. He who dies with the most stuff wins the biggest house, the most cars, the best cars. Hey, I have a Ferrari. Oh, yeah. I've got two Lamborghinis. You suck. I've got four servants. Oh, yeah. I got 12 servants and a jet. You suck. It becomes about how much you can buy, how much you can hoard. Now, notice that is totally unchristian. Ten Commandments, right in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. In the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor spirit, blessed are the poor. Jesus is very clear who he's talking to. Christianity, from the very beginning, is a poor person's religion. Money is a problem in Christianity, and later, and as it breaks apart, Catholicism. There is not a lot in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, to give comfort to rich people. And that's why you get a lot of this stuff. Churches, nunneries, uh, religious schools, uh, monasteries that rich people buy. They donate from the very beginning of Christianity. Rich people donate stuff to the church in order to help them get into heaven. They're like, hey, how about I build you a church and you can preach to the peasants And the priest goes, great, uh, that would be awesome. And the guy goes, awesome, let's build it. And you're going to say a prayer every week for my soul, even after I'm dead, right? And God's going to hear that. And the priest says, of course, you're building a church. We're going to bury you in it. That's how awesome you are. Because rich people were always worried because they read their Gospels. And Jesus is very clear about people who value money. It's easier to get through the eye of a needle, or a camel to get through the eye of a needle, than a rich man to get into heaven. So rich people have always had a problem with Christianity. And consumerism is like, F that man, embrace it. Embrace your wealth. Wealth is what, what God wants. God wants you to be wealthy. Which is a bit of the Protestant work ethic. From the 1500s. God wants you to make money. Uh, This is Max Weber. W E B E R. Max Weber. God wants you to have stuff. And here, I'm here to give you the stuff to make you happy, to make you more godly. So these people feel. They're the middle children of history. There's this feeling in masculinity, as we discussed, of being lost, of not having a cause. Advertisements are telling me my life sucks until I buy a certain kind of item. My wife doesn't respect me because she sees I'm oppressing her. My kids don't respect me because what have I done? I haven't gone to war. I haven't conquered any great nations. all of my entertainment tells me the poor people want to rise up and burn everything down and that it was better back in the day when you conquered africa india or napoleon so what the hell do i have so this brings us to world war 1 this is where we will leave off this episode and we will talk pick up world war 1 in our next episode thank you